Thank you for listening to this message from Resurrection Life Church in Granville, Michigan. Well, again, welcome. And we are beginning a new series of messages today. And the title of the series is I Believe. And what we're going to do is we are going to unpack the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed in the church. Basic, in the basic form that we have it today, we had the Apostles' Creed in the year 110 about 10 years after the Apostle John died, the last one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And how many of you grew up in a church where you repeated the Apostles' Creed? Wave wave at me. That's the majority. That's great. And what we're going to do during this series is we are going to begin each one of our our talks with the Apostles' Creed. We're going to go through it together. So if they can put it up, let's, uh, let's repeat it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From hence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, it is amazing how far many people who consider themselves Christians have drifted from biblical teaching. And uh, it's really, I say it's surprising but yet it was foreseen. In Jude, the third verse, Jude is one of the books in the New Testament. It's right before the book of Revelation, the last book. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, when it says that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints, it's saying what Christians believe was given once, right? And what they believed in the first century, they believed in the third century, and were to believe in the fifth and the tenth and the fifteenth and the twenty-first century, right? The doctrines, the belief of Christianity, right, is not based on a philosophy, on ideas. It is based on acts. Jesus literally went to a cross. They put real nails in his hands and feet, a real crown of thorns on his head, and he really died. He was really buried. He really rose from the dead, and he really ascended into heaven. Now, what this is saying is we need to believe exactly the same as the faith that was given to the church. Now, notice he says you'll have to contend earnestly because there is just a tendency towards faith drift. In other words, you don't believe today what you used to believe. It's true about individuals. It's true about organizations, and it's true about denominations. If John Wesley were to look at the Methodist church today, he would roll over in his grave. Because what the Methodist church does today is not what John Wesley preached 250 years ago. It's very different. 
Take, for example, Harvard University, Princeton University. Those universities were formed to train young men to be pastors and ministers. The thing that they original, what was their original mission and what they originally believed, they mock at today. They mock those very same things today. There is a tendency to let your faith drift. And he said, you will have to contend earnestly because this is what's going to happen. In the last days, the Bible is very clear about this, there's going to be an apostate church. Right? There's going to be people that claim to be Christians, right? but they are not going to believe what Christians believe or do what Christians do. And he says, you're going to have to contend earnestly for the faith. Because you're going to have the world, the devil, and false believers, false Christians that are trying to tell you that what you believe is not right. You need to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Christian Smith uh, and his research group went and they spoke with thousands and thousands of American teenagers, both Protestant and Catholic. And the, at the end of their study, they, just, they found that what most young people today believe would be best described not as Christian, but as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. To break it down real simple, he puts it into five things. I'll, I'll look at those five in just a minute with you. But moralistic, in other words, be a good person. Therapeutic, that the purpose of God in religion is to make you feel good about yourself. All right. And then deism, a deist is someone who believes there is a God, but that that God is distant all right, and is not involved in the everyday affairs of your life. Not a God who wants a relationship with you. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. He said, first of all, they believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over humanity and the earth. Secondly, they believe God wants people to be good, nice, and fair with each other, as is taught by the Bible and many other world religions. Thirdly, that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Yeah, that, that is not very Christian. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when one has a problem they need God to resolve. Not very Christian either. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And we've talked about that one. That's not Christian neither. All right. So what we find is that as a culture, we have slipped farther and farther away from Christian belief. All right. Now, the Bible is, this is what we believe here. All right. We believe that the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God. In other words, the Bible, as it says about itself, is God-breathed. It is God speaking to us, and it is true. All right? Now, we live in a society, today in America, 22% of people believe that there is absolute truth. All right? We believe that the Bible is absolute truth. We believe that something is true, not because you believe it's true, not because I believe it's true. We believe it's true because God says it's true. All right? Now, in 2 Peter, Chapter 1, Peter kind of deals with this when he says in verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice 
to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were on the holy mountain. And we also have a more sure word of prophecy. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, he's talking about Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus, the Bible says that his, his clothes and his countenance, they just begin to glow. Moses and Elijah and Peter and are talking with Jesus about his coming death and resurrection. A cloud comes by and God speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. He said, we were there. We saw it. We heard heard the voice. He said, but we have a more sure word. All right? You say, what's more sure than what they saw and what they heard? The Bible is more sure than what they saw and what they heard. The Bible is very clear that there's a lot of voices out there, right? Not every voice, not every supernatural manifestation is something that comes from God. I'm telling you, you cannot believe what you see. All right? I've got a picture here that proves it right here. Can you guys put that picture up? <laughs> now, I'm telling you, I've lifted weights, but they never worked. It never worked. Right? Now, Jeannie makes me feel like that, but it took Joe about 15 minutes to put that together. All right? You, you can see something, but, but that doesn't mean it's true. Right? You can hear something, that doesn't mean that it's true. What, it, what, what the, the apostle said was the more sure word that we have, more than an angel, more than a voice from heaven, more than anything, the more sure word is the word of God. Isaiah 8:20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, according to the Bible, it's because there's no light in them. They're saying if you disagree with God, very simply, you're wrong. The Bible claims the unique privilege of being the means through which God speaks to humanity. Right? That's what the Bible claims to be. And I believe that that is true. God's ideal way of changing us is to have us read the Bible and find out how we should live and then depend on that indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. Someone gave a, a Bible to a new believer and wrote inside the the uh, front cover of that Bible and wrote this. This book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. You think about that. I believe that that's true. George Barna's group did a study with high school seniors and 50% of high school seniors in America believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were married. 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. So we're going to go back to the oldest creed in Christianity, the Apostles' Creed. And again, about 10 years after the Apostle John died, we had the creed in basically the same form that we have it today. Now, someone said, I thought that each one of the Apostles gave a line that is not true. Right? That's just kind of like a fable. Right? But it, we did have it very, very soon after John died, and it was referred to as the rule of faith. And when a person wanted to be baptized, they needed to make the confession of the Apostles' Creed. It's the oldest creed, and it gives us a great understanding of Christian belief. Now, before we jump in to the creed itself, you need to understand 
that Jesus is the head of the church. The Bible says this in Acts 20, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus purchased the church. It belongs to him. It's not your church and it's not my church in the sense of ownership, right? It belongs to Jesus. He purchased it. It's his. And because of that, you and I have no right to change the church or to reinvent the church, right? Now, the message, the beliefs are sacred. The method is not. Now, I remember growing up when they first brought a guitar into the church. I remember that. You're old. I mean, people thought lightning bolts were going to come from heaven because we weren't using the organ. All right. That's a method. All right. The method is not sacred. All right. But the message, the truth, that is sacred. All right. And that's what cannot be changed. A leading voice in the emergent church. And by the way, the emergent church is a group that want to reinvent. And they'll say it this way. We want to reinvent the church. And they say the church is about to change and accept behavior and truth that it has always rejected. Think about that. Accept behavior and truth that it has always rejected. In other words, change what the church believes. But the true faith was delivered how often? Once for all. And when you change the church, it's no longer the church of Jesus Christ. It becomes your church, but it's not his church, right? Timothy says this, 1 Timothy 3, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Other translations say the pillar and stay, the prop and support of truth, the backbone and support of truth. The living God is the strong foundation, or the church of the living God is the strong foundation of the church, the pillar and buttress of the church, the pillar and mainstay of the truth, church, which contains and holds high the truth of God, the bastion of truth. It is the church, and it is not to change because he changes not. And the church has always been countercultural. Now, you're to be in the world, but not of the world. The church has always, I'm going to say that again, been countercultural. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's take, for example, let's look at the first couple centuries of the church. The church believed in life that life was given by God, that life is sacred. And because of that, the church stood against gladiatorial games and said, we will not participate in gladiatorial games. Now, later they were forced to because they were you know, eaten by lions as part of the games. But in the gladiatorial games, people would fight to the death. And the church said that is wrong. Life is precious. Life is a gift from God. And that is wrong. And they would not participate in the gladiatorial games. Also, infanticide 
was very common. If, if a child was born, was deformed in any way, even at times when it was an undesired sex, if they were looking for a boy or a girl, got the wrong sex, they would kill the child. It was accepted in both Greek and Roman culture. And the church said that is wrong. That's wrong. Life is precious. The church stood against abortion. Right? Why? Because they said life is precious. They stood against emperor worship. Now, it, it literally in the Roman Empire, it got to the point where every emperor was considered to be a god in the flesh. And in every Roman town, there were, there were uh, specific areas, altars, where you were supposed to go and you were supposed to take just a little bit of incense and just put it over a fire and just acknowledge the deity of the emperor and worship the emperor. But the Christians said, no, we won't do that because Jesus is Lord and the emperor is a man. And we will not worship anyone that is a man. Right? They stood against adultery. They stood against homosexuality. They stood against the pantheon of Roman gods. They stood against euthanasia. Again, someone became old, crippled. They would just kill that person. Right? The church said, no, that life is precious. As a Christian, they said, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're part of a different kingdom. And what Christianity is, is it is a kingdom. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. For the kingdom of God is here. And they said, well, where is it? He said, it doesn't come with observation. He said, the kingdom of God, it is within you. Right? So the church has always been countercultural. Right? And the church, the real church, will continue to be countercultural. And the culture that we live in, as it said about, about uh, Lot and Sodom, it says that his righteous soul was vexed daily as he saw the ungodly conduct around him. You know? And as a believer, your soul will be vexed as you see things that take place in our culture that the culture accepts and promotes. All right? And one of those things, of course, is, is tolerance. You know, tolerance used to mean, you know, you can believe what you want to believe and, and uh, I accept you, but not that I believe that what you believe is true, right? Jesus said this to the church in Revelation. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate, that you tolerate, right? That you accept as equal and right every belief, right? He said, I have this against you. All right, so the church has always believed in being countercultural, always has been. The church has always believed in the authority of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which simply means it is God-breathed. God used people to write it down, but God moved them, right? And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. It is true, and what God has said will come to pass, will come to pass. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about just the, the, the bare minimums a person needs to believe in order to be a Christian. This is what he says. I want you to listen. Listen for a phrase that comes out here twice. He says, for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and after that was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or have died. Now notice, he only talks about a couple of things. He says that he died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
rose on the third day and was seen, we can say, by many. But each time he talks about it, he says, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And Christians have always based their beliefs according to the scripture. The first line of the creed says, I believe in God, the father almighty, the maker or the creator of heaven and earth. Now, this, this creed is something that all Christians believe. Now, it begins with, I believe today, the original actually said, we believe. We believe. I, I think you know this, but we be, we, you and I right now in the 21st century in the United States, in, in what we would call Western culture, we are living in the most individualistic culture the world has ever seen, right? And there are many very dark sides to the individualistic culture that you and I live in. Everything is about me. It's about my being happy. It's about my rights and about what I want, all right? Uh, the, the world has never seen anything like that. And by the way, the Bible tells you that when God looks at you, he doesn't just see you, all right? He sees you connected to a family. He sees you as part of a community, right? It's you read the Old Testament and leaders do something as representatives of nations and the entire nation is judged for what the leader does, right? Because God just doesn't look at you as an individual. He looks at you as connected to a family, connected to a community, and connected to a part of human government. And leaders can do something that affects an entire nation. And so when, when the creed begins, it says, we believe. It's because the first thing that happens when a person receives Jesus, when somebody comes up here at the end of a service and we pray with them, before they take two steps, something has happened in the spirit. The Bible says that God takes you and baptizes you into the body of Christ. Literally, before a person moves, when they make that confession of faith, the Spirit of God takes them and baptizes or immerses them into the body of Christ. God no longer sees them as separate from the body of Christ, but as part of that body. It says, we believe. Right? Now, the idea that Christianity is simply forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God is not biblical. Right? It is not biblical. See, early Christian understanding was it is, it is a relationship with God and there is forgiveness. That's part of it. But the other part is you're part of a community of believers referred to as the church. And this idea that Christianity is just me and Jesus and a half a dozen butler angels to get all the stuff that I want is not from the Bible. Right? It's from our culture, but it's not from the Bible. Right. I want you to understand that. Listen to what Jesus says. He's teaching his disciples to pray. And I want you to listen for the ours and the us's and the we's. Right. Our Father, not my, but our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive, as we forgive our 
debts or those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? What, what is Jesus telling us? He's saying this isn't just about you. Right? You're a part of a community of believers. And that is one of the reasons why we keep talking to you about getting in a small group. All right. So often people just come to church and, and they're here for an hour and 10 minutes and they leave. And that's all that they have to do with sharing their life. And, and it's not the way God wants us to live. So we believe. We believe. Now, faith is not you're getting God to do what you want God to do. All right. Faith is our response to what God has done for us by grace and what God has said. Faith is a response. It's not, again, getting God to do something, right? Let me say this. And every person needs to do their own believing. God has no grandchildren. You say, yeah, but I was brought up in a Christian home. Well, great. You know, does that mean if somebody's brought up in a garage, they're a car? No, being brought up in a garage doesn't make you a car any more than going to Dunkin' Donuts makes you a policeman. <laughs> now, I'm going to get in trouble for that. All you policemen, please forgive me. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> All right. You probably don't even eat donuts. But everybody has to do their own believing. God doesn't have grandchildren. Right? Believing is trusting in the character of God. That God is who he says he is, that he will do what he said that he would do, right? And faith is the most precious possession that somebody can have. And that's why you need to feed your faith and you need to protect your faith. Someone said that he who loses money loses much. He who loses a friend loses much more. But he who loses his faith loses all. And I believe that that's true. Now, Ed Cole made a statement, and, and I think it's worthwhile repeating. He said, the only scripture you believe is the one you obey. The only scripture you believe is the one that you obey. Now, what believing does is it connects you to God when you believe God. Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot please God. You cannot connect with God. You cannot receive from God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That it makes a difference when you pray. It makes a difference when you study your Bible. It makes a difference when you worship. It makes a difference when you come to the house of God to be a part of the community of believers. When you come and seek God, it makes a difference. Right? Smith Wigglesworth said this. He says, there is something about believing God that will cause God to pass over a million people just to get to you. And I believe that's true. Right? Now, ch believing changes the way you live. Believing changes the way you live. Faith without works is dead. What a lot of people think is believing is mental assent, right? Where they just recognize something as being true, but do not act on it, right? The Bible says that the demons believe and tremble. How many know that's more than some people, right? 
Now, so they have a mental ascent. They know those things are true, but it does not change what they do, right? Many people believe that faith is just recognizing that something is true, a mental ascent, all right? Again, James said demons believe, Satan believes, right, and trembles. But faith without works, it's dead. So, in other words, actions must correspond to your faith. Faith is not something we have as much as it is something we do. Not that faith is not just something you have. It's something that you do. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, where it it mentions all the great men and women of faith, it's by faith Noah built, by faith Abraham left, by faith Joshua walked around the walls. Every time it talks about about faith, it talks about what they did. Because faith without works, it's dead. It's not Bible faith if it doesn't change your behavior, right? Noah looked like a fool building an ark in a desert. Sarah looked foolish looking for maternity clothes at 90, right? Israel like fool, they looked foolish marching around Jericho seven times. David looked foolish attacking Goliath with a slingshot, right? But those are all things that they did by faith. All right. Mother Teresa said, faith keeps the person who keeps the faith. And I believe that that is true. So in we in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we believe in God, the father, the creator of heaven and earth. God is too mysterious for me to define, too obvious for me to deny, too great for me to manage, too loving for me to mistrust, too powerful for me to battle, too fatherly for me to forget, too kind for me to ignore, and too right for me to go another way. But he is too obvious to deny. And that's the argument that the Apostle Paul brings in Romans chapter 1. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, I have a watch on, I think it's 220 parts in this watch. Now, if if I were to take all the parts apart, put them in a box and shake them up and throw them out, what are the chances of that watch just coming together and saying, 1234. You know, the, 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 the chances of this universe coming into existence simply by time and chance are a, a million times less than that that watch would come together. Even just our eye, your tiny retina contains about 130 rod-shaped cells which detect light's intensity and transmit impulses to the visual cortex of the brain by means of some one million nerve fibers. Why nearly six million cone-shaped cells do the same job but respond specifically to color variations. The eye can handle 50,000 messages simultaneously and they're kept clear by ducts producing just the right amount of fluid with which to clean the lens in the eye simultaneously in about one five thousandths of a second. And that's just one part of creation. 
And people say, well, just time and chance brought that together. In 1923, Anthony Flew was born in England. His parents were Methodist pastors, in fact, prominent Methodist pastors. And when he got a bit older, he was sent to a boys' school started by the great evangelist John Wesley, who earlier had really was the father of the Methodist denomination. But at the age of 15, he became an atheist, and he argued with his friends and with his teachers against the existence of God. Now, he was brilliant, ended up going to Oxford, where at the Socratic Club, he debated multiple times C.S. Lewis. Now, some of you know C.S. Lewis. He was the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. And by the way, an apologist is not someone who apologizes for being Christian, right? An apologist is someone who argues for the existence of God, right? Well, he became, over time, the leading intellectual atheist in the world, bar none. Right? Wrote over 40 books and articles arguing against the existence of God. Now, his parents are pastors, and I'm sure they prayed for him all of his, all their lives. But in 2007, in his 80s, Anthony Flew wrote his last book. And the title of the book is There Is No God. And no is crossed out. Now, this is what he said. He said, I always said I would follow the evidence. And he said, and I followed the evidence. He said, and when I was shown the complexity of the human DNA, he said, I realized it is impossible that this could have ever happened by chance. He said, I don't know who God is, but I know there is a God. There absolutely is no doubt there is a God. There is intelligent design. He said, it, it is just absolutely impossible that this could happen by chance. The appendix of the book, by the way, is written by N.T. Wright, a theologian from England, and he is arguing for the divinity and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when Anthony flew, became a deist, said, I no longer believe in evolution. I believe in intelligent design. I believe there is a God. It was like the Pope and Billy Graham both become an atheist. I mean, it just rocked the world of the intellectual atheist. Right? The truth is that we believe, but what we believe is not far-fetched. It is much more far-fetched to believe that everything that you see just happened by chance. Just put time and chance together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And would you please bow your head for just a moment? It's in John 3.16 that the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice that God loves you. And the truth is, if you had been the only person on this earth, Jesus would have come to die for you. He loves you. And there is nothing that you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. 
He wants to forgive you. He wants you to become a part of his family. Now, the thought will come into your mind that I have done all these things. And God is mad at me. God has rejected me. God will never receive me. God will never forgive me. God doesn't want me. I've gone too far. It is a lie. Nothing you have ever done makes God love you any less. You say, why? Because God is love. He is love. And he loves you. And if you're away from God today, I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe that you're here because he loves you and he is drawing you to himself. And he wants you to respond to his love. There are two things that he wants you to do. He wants you to turn your back on your old life and stop living to please yourself and to begin to live for the one who died for you and rose again. And he wants you to receive Jesus. It's not just enough to have mental assent, to know about Jesus. The Bible says, for to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to be the children of God. And if you're here today, not right with God, please receive the forgiveness and the love that he has for you. I'm going to count to three in just a moment. When I say three, if you say, I want to receive his love, I want to receive his forgiveness, I want to live for him, then I want you to lift your hand. We're going to pray. God is going to meet you right here in this place. And when we say amen, you will be forgiven. You will be right with God, a part of his family forever and ever. So here's what you need to know. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Your way won't get you to God. My way won't get me to God. One way, and that's Jesus. So as you're lifting your hand today, you're saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and need a Savior. And I know there's only one, and that is Jesus. And I'm coming to him today to be saved, to be forgiven. One. Secondly, as you lift your hand, you're saying to God, God, I want to be a part of your family. And today, I'm turning my back on my old life. I'm no longer going to live to please myself. But I'm going to live for the one that died for me and rose again. Two, now get ready. When you lift your hand, you're saying, today by faith, I'm going to pray and I'm going to receive Jesus. He's going to come into my heart. He's going to blood wash me from my sin. I'm going to be forgiven. My past is going to be gone. He's going to make me a new person on the inside, a part of God's family on my way to heaven. Three, lift that hand right now. For more information about Res Life, please visit our website at reslife.org. If you have questions about Res Life or would like directions to visit us, please feel free to call 616-534-4923.